Friends, let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to study this chapter in its entirety. Hear now God's word. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered him and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there also has been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, and her pains came upon her. And about that time of her death, the women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Let's pray together. Father, these are heavy words in a dark time, the valley of the shadow of death. I pray that amidst this confusion, you would speak to us words of truth. We're eager and we're greedy to hear them, and so we pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You know, as we enter this chapter, we're entering a season in the life of Israel of utter confusion as to who God really is. There are so many misunderstandings in this chapter about the nature of God. And that's so ironic because we just spent last week and last chapter understanding that God is raising up this new prophet priest, Samuel, who, like Jesus and with God's help, does not let a single word from God drop to the ground. Well, now when we transition to this chapter, Samuel will fade into the background for three chapters, and we will read here and now four people or groups who utterly drop any understanding of God to the ground. They don't know him, they don't hear from him, and they misunderstand him. Well, to set the stage before we understand these four groups, our passage, it opens with a battle between Israel and the Philistines. Now, we know from the book of Judges that the Philistines are an ongoing problem for Israel. The Philistines, they have an upper hand. They moved about 100 years before this from the island of Crete. And we all just left the island of Crete because that's where Titus had planted the church that Paul was writing to him when we studied that letter. But the Philistines, 100 years before this battle, came... And they settled along this Mediterranean coast, and they owned this coastal plain, and they were brilliant strategists, they were bold fighters, and they had developed iron chariots, which Israel did not have, and it gave them a distinct advantage. And so for a very long time, they hold sway over this region, and they're an ongoing problem for Israel. But also at this time, the judge Samson is alive and well, and he is wreaking havoc on the Philistines. And so the Philistines decide, we need to go for the jugular. They bring up all their army, and they encamp at Aphek, because 20 miles east of Aphek is the city of Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the priesthood and the Ark of the Covenant dwell. If they can take out that city and that tabernacle, they take out the heart and soul and identity of Israel. And so they poise themselves to attack. Now Israel knows this and they respond and they camp at Ebenezer because they want to do battle. And the first time they engage, Israel loses and they need to go and regroup. And when they do that, the elders say, the next time we fight, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is about to make a very prominent stand in these next chapters. It's going to be mentioned 37 times in the next three chapters. So it's just helpful for us to remember what exactly this is. What what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, this was something that God told Moses to tell Israel to build. It's essentially a box, a wooden box that's four feet long, two feet wide, two feet deep. It's overlaid in gold, and it has a lid on it. And inside of it right now are two things, the Ten Commandments that Moses received on Sinai and a jar of manna. So this thing is reminding the people of the covenant and the law and also of God's provision. All of that is under a lid, which is often described as the mercy seat. And we get a little bit of a description in verse 4. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. So on top of this lid, on top of the ark, there are these two golden engraved cherubim, which are these awesome winged angelic beings facing each other. And God himself, who dwells in all the world, has decided to show his presence most fully between these cherubim. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, and that's why the Ark of the Covenant is such a holy thing. In fact, 
all year round, the ark stays inside the tabernacle, and not just in the tabernacle, but in the Holy of Holies behind a curtain. Nobody can approach the tabernacle, nobody can approach the ark of the covenant, except for the high priest who comes once a year to make a sacrifice. This thing was absolutely holy and significant to Israel, and this is how God demonstrated that he was reigning in Israel and he was their God among them. Well, to know what the ark is kind of helps set the stage to, to get access to these four people or groups of people who misunderstand God. I want to mention each of them briefly, and I want to just very briefly to connect their misunderstanding to maybe some of the ways we misperceive or misunderstand God. The first group that appears are the elders. When Israel is defeated, they come back to the camp, and the elders ask a terrific question. Why has the Lord caused this defeat? But they don't wait for an answer. Instead, before they even speak to God, they decide on a plan of action. They say, let's go get the ark 20 miles away, and let's bring that into our camp, and let's bring it into battle, because if we do that, then the Lord will give us victory. Do you see what the elders are trying to do here? Essentially, they're saying, if we can get this ark and and God's seated presence, and we can get it into battle, then surely God will give us the victory, right? They're, they're kind of thinking of the ark as a rabbit's foot that's going to give them good luck. They're thinking that God is kind of malleable, bendable, that they can use this thing to coerce God and to change the course of actions that have already been set. Um, my wife and I, when we first got married, had some conflict over money, as many of us do when we first get married and before we set a budget and an envelope system. And if you look at the spectrum of the spender versus the saver, my wife is just barely on the line of the spender, and I am just so far adrift on the saver side that, you know, tight-fisted and frugal and all those things. My school of thought is, if we bought clothes last year, why are we talking about buying clothes again this year? Like, what's the point in that? Um, But to totally over-exaggerate a scene with Julie, uh, she would go to a store, and I would get a phone call. I'm sitting at home, minding my own business, probably reading my Bible. And and Julie would call, and she would say, I'm at the store. I found this dress. It fits perfectly. I've tried it on a hundred times. I have a dozen friends with me, and you're on speakerphone can I get this dress? And I would just sweat and have no idea how to answer that. Well, the only thing you can do if you're under that kind of pressure is say, babe, you can get anything you want as long as it's returnable. We'll do that. You know, that's essentially, I mean, that's a total exaggeration, but that's essentially what the elders are doing with God. They put God in this incredibly awkward position, right? Where now God has a decision to make. His ark is being dragged into this battle. If he gives Israel the victory, he upholds Hophni and Phinehas who are bringing the ark, and he upholds these elders who are trying to coerce him and twist his arm. But if he doesn't give Israel the victory, then he loses and he hurts his reputation before this pagan nation, the Philistine people. The the elders have God where they want him. They're trying to bend him to do what they want him to do. Friends, that can be true of us. Where intimacy is lacking with God, attempts to coerce him are not far behind. We do this all the time in our prayers and our interactions with each other. There's the, the passive-aggressive approach to God. God, if you really loved me, if you were really concerned about me and my family and my future, you would do this. 
God, if you want to honor your name, this is what I need you to do. The passive-aggressive approach. There's the subjective approach that we talk to each other about. I feel that God wants this for me. I believe that God intends this for me, and he wants me to be this way, do this thing, or act in this way. If we don't know God, if we're not listening to God, we relate to him in dysfunction. We can't help but try to bend him to what we want. Well, the second group of people that misunderstand God are the Philistines. And truly, the Philistines are the only group of people with an excuse in this chapter because they do not yet know God. They're not believers. They don't trust in the one true God. And they're the only people with an excuse for their misunderstanding. But it is fascinating to hear them take a stab at describing who God is. And we get to hear that in verse 8. Look at that. Woe to us, they say, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? That's a pagan nation describing Israel's God, and they have some of their facts funny. They are looking at God through their polytheistic lens and thinking about God as many, and they also have the story of Egypt a little bit garbled where it relates and comes into with respect to the wilderness, But all of this is Israel's neighbor describing Israel's God. Now, I wonder for a moment what it would look like if we could listen in on our neighbor's descriptions of our God. Wouldn't that be telling for somebody to ask your neighbor, what do you think about this person's God? If you were to come to my home and my street and my neighborhood and you grabbed Sam and Ashley and Stan and Mary and Dana and you said, how would you describe David's God? What would they say? I'll tell you right now, they'll say, apparently his God doesn't care about front yards, right? Because this thing is a disaster. It looks like Chernobyl happened up in here. Um, what, what, What else would they say? How else would they describe him? Would they say, I, I don't know because he doesn't say much about him. Or would they say, I remember him saying that God did something big in his life several years ago, but I haven't heard anything since then. So maybe he's more of a God that deals with big projects and not the little things. Wouldn't that be so convicting and telling to get that description from your neighbor, which you have given them for the God that you serve? The Philistines, they don't quite understand who God is, but where they err most grievously is thinking that God is a God who can be defeated, and this is going to cost them terribly. The third group or person is Eli himself. Now, Eli, by this point, is completely blind, but he can't help but sit by the city gate and watch to see what is happening and who's going to win and what turns out because, verse 13 says, his heart trembled for the ark of God. Now, the messenger, he comes and he tells the city and then tells Eli this bad news and he describes it to them. He says, look, Israel has lost. Your two sons have died. And verse 18, he says, and the ark has been captured. And it's at that point when Eli learns that the very thing that he has served and worked for, God's presence in the ark is gone. He falls backwards in his seat and he breaks his neck and he dies. Eli feared for God. Now, isn't that an interesting posture to have for the God of all the universe, to be afraid or to fear for him? Beware of a domesticated religion that causes us to fear for our God. 
Karl Barth said that we should walk through the world with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. And I think he's totally right. How do we interpret events based on Scripture? How do we understand these things within a biblical worldview? But if we get to the point where we look at events in America and the world and it looks like God is beginning to lose his grip, that he's losing his reputation, that he's at this time being misspoken for, that he's giving up ground, that irreparable damage is being done to him, then I'm going to prescribe a little less newspaper and a little more Bible for us in our diets, right? The way I read history, even the scariest parts of history, from Babel to Babylon, from Sodom to Supreme Court decisions, from crucifixions to catacombs, from Golgotha to the gates of hell, even when it feels like the chips are down, God is going to be just fine. And we who misspeak for him are going to be silenced, and God is going to speak for himself. We do not fear for God, we fear him, and we love him, and we delight in him. Finally, Phineas's wife, she's the last person at her death, when she hears about her husband and her father-in-law dying, she's forced into early labor that's going to take her own life, she names her son Ichabod, verse 22, saying that the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now, clearly, she's the the sharpest theologian in the bunch, but she has this understanding backwards, as others have pointed out. She thinks the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured, but actually the reverse is true. The ark has been captured because the glory has departed from Israel. God himself has departed, and the implications are on the ark itself. What do we make of all this as we wade into this chapter And we see these four misunderstandings abound. The elders are trying to coerce God. The Philistines, they're trying to defeat God. Eli, he's afraid for this tamer version of who God is. And Phineas' wife, she has it all backwards. Here's what drives me absolutely crazy about a chapter like this. God doesn't defend himself. In my humble opinion, this would be a perfect time at the end of this chapter for the prophet priest Samuel to appear and to say, look guys, let's clear the air. Let's set the record straight. Let's have a basic understanding of theology and I will describe what God is really like over and against all these misunderstandings that are happening. But to ask God to defend himself and what he's doing is to think that God needs to make a defense to someone. To presume that God needs to answer for his actions is to presume that he is answerable and God himself answers to no man. There's a wild scene in Joshua chapter 5 which I think captured this really well. It's the scene where Israel has crossed over the Jordan River. They're coming into the land, the promised land, and they're about to fit the battle of Jericho. And Joshua, their leader, is up wandering about by himself And he comes across this man-like, angel-like being who has a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua asks just a really uh, understandable question. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And what does the being say? No. And at that point, I would think he totally misunderstood me. And so I would ask again, look, there's, there's two answers here. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And the being says, no, but I am the commander of the army 
of the Lord, and I have come. Now, to me, that's one of the most troubling, heartening answers that God could give. It's troubling because I very readily understand that, that my life, my will, my agenda is being dethroned as the object for which God is moving all creation. But it's heartening to know that God is working the whole of this world towards something so much better. God in this chapter, he universally disappoints every single person who's here, right? He doesn't do what anybody wants. He doesn't do what the elders want. He doesn't bow to their attempts to coerce him. He doesn't do what the Philistines want. They want him to die and to stay dead. He doesn't act as Eli and his family want. He doesn't become this tamer version of himself who's attached to this item of religiosity. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, in this chapter, God does something so brilliant and so beautiful. There is not a single man, woman, or child in this chapter who could have thought to ask for what God is doing. Look at this. A fellow pastor pointed this out to me. I've never thought about this before. When Phineas's wife names her child Ichabod, she says, The glory has departed from Israel. And if you look in my ESV Bible, there's a footnote. Maybe yours has this as well. You could translate this, and this is true to the Hebrew. Not the glory has departed from Israel, but the glory has gone into exile. That's a really, really important word in our Bibles. She says, the glory of God has been exiled. I remember hearing a speaker a number of years ago who's both a speaker and an author say that when he signs his books, he signs his name, and then he writes a little scripture verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's how he signs every book. And you remember that verse says, the Lord, um, secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. That's just a sweet little verse to sign a book with. So he does that again and again and again, and then this woman comes and puts her book down, he signs it, and he accidentally, for the first time, writes Deuteronomy 28, 28. And she takes the book and goes, and he realizes that after she's leaving, but he's like, you know, all scripture is God-breathed. What's the, what's the big deal? Until he gets home and opens his Bible and reads Deuteronomy 28, 28, which says, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. (laughs) That lady is never going to buy another one of his books. That verse is in the middle of a bigger chapter, Deuteronomy 28, which actually describes the curses that will befall Israel if she runs from God. These are the curses that will happen to one who defies the living God. And they culminate at the end of the chapter with verse 63, and you shall be plucked off the land. In other words, you defy the living God, Israel, and you deserve exile. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 4 finds Israel at the height of a 300-year rebellion in which she has done everything to run far from God. She has defied God, disbelieved God, misunderstood God, spit in his face, blasphemed God in the way he has ordered them to do the sacrifices. They've done everything to prove that they deserve every single curse listed in Deuteronomy chapter 28. They deserve exile and worse. But Israel isn't exiled in 1 Samuel chapter 4. God is. The glory 
of God is exiled as God himself enters the land of the Philistines and he wages a war that Israel herself never could have waged. God bears the curse of sin. God exiles himself to the land of the Philistines and when he does this a thousand years before Jesus shows up, he whets our appetites and causes us to wonder in our imagination of what kind of God this is who would bear the curse of his people. He's a God that gets us ready for the gospel. Friends, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's pray together. God, this is so marvelous and wonderful. We never would have thought to ask for this. I pray that we as a people would more often be silent in our desires of what you will do and more ready to hear that you are a God to come and save us and change us and redeem us. Let us trust in you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.